Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Stories have the power to connect us, to allow us to see through another's eyes, to make us feel. And when those stories are true... Today, we're talking about the power of telling your own story. You'll hear from two remarkable authors. First is Sharon Robinson, the daughter of baseball legend Jackie Robinson. Sharon is the author of several works of fiction and nonfiction, including many widely praised titles about her father and his life. This year, she's telling her own story in Child of the Dream, a memoir about one of the most pivotal years in the civil rights movement, 1963, when Sharon was just 13. Later, I'll talk with Da Chen. Da is a New York Times bestselling author who joins us to talk about his new memoir for young readers, Girl Under a Red Moon, the deeply moving story focuses on Da's older sister, Cece, and their childhood in China during the Cultural Revolution. First, here's Sharon. Hi, Sharon. Welcome to the program. Hi, Suzanne. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, we are thrilled to have you. I just finished your memoir, Child of the Dream. It is absolutely gorgeous and so poignant. I would love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about the book. Well, Child of a Dream is is um, takes place in 1963. It's the year I turned 13. It's also a pivotal year for the civil rights movement. So in the book, I merge all the angst of a 13-year-old, um, including my discovery about race and, and understanding it better, what the civil rights movement was all about. And the way my family uh, brought my brothers and I into the movement. And so it wasn't just my dad going out there raising money for the civil rights movement. It became a family effort. And that family effort was part of his way of helping us to define what legacy is. Can you set the stage for our listeners? What was going on in the nation at large, but also in your home? Okay, so in 1963... um, the civil rights movement was really heated up. It became more, uh, Dr. King moved the efforts to Birmingham, Alabama. They called it the Birmingham campaign. And during that campaign, they started off with adults and organizing to, um, he considered Birmingham the most segregated city in America at that point. So they started off with a very clear definition of what this campaign was because they had not been successful when they were too broad in Albany, Georgia, where they had just left. So they narrowed it down to, you know, opening up businesses, um, opening up the parks so that they were open to all citizens of Birmingham and uh, anti-segregation in general, but uh, school desegregation was, you know, something they were ho- hoping that they would be able to set up um, committees for and really work towards. So that year, my um, dad was traveling for Dr. King as well as for 
uh, NAACP raising money. He was primarily, in, during the movement, he was a fundraiser. So that, since my father was traveling south and we were living in, in Stanford, Connecticut, we were, my dad would come home at, in the evenings when he came back from his travels or just uh, after we saw the news, we would talk about it at the dinner table. That was sort of our gathering point as a family. And in that process, my brothers and I began to feel like, you know, yes, we were integrating our schools or had integrated our schools in Stanford, Connecticut, in our neighborhood and all, but we still felt disconnected from the larger mass movement. And my dad, over the course of that year, found a way, and my mom, found a way to bring the children, meaning my brothers and I, um, directly in contact with the movement and had us, it gave us a role. And part of that role my dad defined, um, he hoped that as adults we would find work that we loved and we would always keep our family and God as a, a priority. But he also felt it was because we were a public family and, and we were invested in, in social change in this country, that we also had to have a family mission or a family legacy. And he defined that, helped us define that in 1963. And we started off by doing fundraisers our, as a family, doing fundraisers at our house, jazz concerts to raise money for the for Dr. King, for NAACP. And then we went to, as a family, to the March on Washington. So that made this year pivotal, not just on a national scale, but also in our home. We you know we got what we asked for. Um, we felt included in, in this larger movement. From George Wallace's chilling segregationist speech as he's inaugurated as governor of Alabama, to the March on Washington, to even meeting Dr. King in your own home, there were so many powerful and important events happening around you. But one that really struck you was the Children's March in Birmingham, Alabama. Could you talk about that a bit? So the civil rights movement was took place from the 50s through the 60s. So in 1964, we actually had the passage of the Civil Rights Acts. So that was sort of the culmination of the civil rights movement. Um, it was the primary leader and, and architect of the civil rights movement was Dr. Martin Luther King. Many disciples, you can call them whatever, you know, that, that worked with him. And, um, but he was, was our key leader. In 19, by 1963, a movement that had begun um, in the 50s was you know, reaching a point where we had to start seeing some success. We'd seen the passage of Brown versus Board of Education, but we had not actually seen any movement towards desegregating schools. So the, the point of the marches or the protest marches was to, you know, just like they are today, you know, to get public awareness, public uh, support, um, political support, all of that is part of this mission. Well, in during the civil rights movement, the marches, the other thing they, how they're part of how they got this attention on the issues was by going to jail. So it was part of it. So you would see people march and they would go to jail. Well, that's also where you can put a pressure point on adults because jobs can say now you're public. They see you publicly out there marching and they know you went to jail. Right. So they can discriminate against you. You can lose your job. So that's part of how the 
community sort of narrowed, uh, put pressure on um, the black adults um, so that they were like questioning whether they should continue to go out and march. And also they were worried about their lives, you know, because they were um, all kinds of horrible violence against black people, and particularly if they protested um, during those times. So a young person in, in the movement came up with the idea of organizing children. And he sold uh, Dr. King and the leadership on this idea um, and told them that they were training the kid. They would train the kids just like they trained the adults in nonviolence, because that was Dr. King's philosophy. You know, we don't we don't meet violence with violence. We we remain nonviolent, and show that you know that we're the the better people, really, right, kind of right. in a way, um, and that this mission is important to us. Um, so they started recruiting. And training. So what is this nonviolence? You know, how do you, I mean, how do you respond when a hose knocks, is knocking you, going to knock you off your feet? Right. You know, you have to bend and curl and get down on the ground. I mean, just basic things like that. Um, you want to fight back, you know, um, in anger, but you have to hold it in. And so the singing even was a way to release that fear and that anger. You know, you, you sing and we sing of songs of freedom we had all these wonderful movement songs that we sang when we were marching. So anyway, the, they organ, started organizing these older students, and then um, they selected a day when they were going to all, it was the beginning of May, they were all going to just walk out of cl- class at uh, noon. And they just walked out, and it, and it, it was a movement of children um, protesting segregation, discrimination. So it was very organized and very orderly. And the goal was to make it from the black community church to downtown where the businesses are, because that's where they're trying to integrate. Um, And they got stopped by the police midway um, because they didn't want them, obviously, to make it downtown. And, And then they got carted off to jail and they carted them off in school buses and paddy wagons, however they carted them off, they filled, the children filled the jail. So they did what the adults were not able to do. There were so many children that participated in this that they filled all of the jails. So jails that should have had, you know, 50 people in them had 200 people, kids. You know, so they were stuffed into these jails, jail cells. And then they got, it was overflow. And the overflow was literally a... Um, fairgrounds. So when I talk about some of the the mother's reactions to those kids being in the fairgrounds, it was like they couldn't see their kids. They're in a open facility. It was raining. Um, you know they don't get answers. You're not getting real answers. So they did whatever what the what mothers would do: go home and make sandwiches. And they started throwing them over the fence, you know. And, and so there are all kinds of people that were um, made this movement successful. Um, and everyone had a, had a role to play. And these children um, that marched May of 1963, you know, were because what happened is when it was on the 6 o'clock news, when Walter Cronkite's covering it on the news, it used to, the pressure came from everywhere. So it came from Hollywood. It came from 
you know, they're, and they're pr- the pressure is on President Kennedy, you know. And, but not everyone agreed, even in the black community, not everyone agreed with the use of children. Um, but it was effective. You know, Malcolm X was opposed to it. You know, um, you know, many people thought it was too dangerous for children, and, but it worked. Um, the people saw these kids being carted off to jail, and they wrote letters, they wrote columns in newspapers. It's fascinating to read the, um, the, the columns that are written in New York Times even, you know. You know, people outraged that this is happening in our country. The fire hoses and the dogs the being fire turned hose on these. Yep. Yeah. So, because again, we have this George Wallace, who was governor. You've got um, Bill Connor, police commissioner, you know, who are segregationists and, and intend to keep it that way. So... They were going to do whatever they could to stop these kids from being effective, and it didn't work. The kids were effective and got the attention of of President Kennedy, who sent down Robert Kennedy. And the march, uh, as a result of the march, the businessman agreed to sit down and and start talking about the issues. So it was a, a success. Justice triumphed. Justice triumphed, absolutely. <laughs> So I'd love to ask you now, what inspired you to tell this story now, this memoir? I was inspired by the Children's March in 1963 in Birmingham because these children had a voice. And they were marching and singing and going off to jail. They were putting their lives online. They were, they appeared not to be afraid, even when they were faced with these dogs and and the force of a fire, you know, fire hose. Um, they didn't want their parents. I mean, they didn't need their parents. They were just, you know, yes, we'll step out in the front line because their parents had been backing off. And they, but they, they were part of segregation. They were, they were experiencing the same hate and, and separation, both in, um, they couldn't go downtown. They couldn't go to the park. Their parents weren't allowed to shop down there. They couldn't get jobs down there. So their whole world had been confined to a small area. But they took to the streets with, with such courage. And, you know, you watched them on the, because I was watching them on the news. And you're just like, I can't believe this, these kids. You know, I just can't believe their courage. And that had been a theme for me since the 50s um, when the Little Rock Nine integrated their school. And I thought that was amazing. And my dad, we were having dinner and they called him, you know, and it was like, I can't believe they called my father. (laughs) My father came back to the dining room. I "I can't believe those courageous kids are calling me for inspiration. You know, so we were all like kind of shocked (laughs) that they reached out. You know, I was only seven at that point. But I knew this was, wow, you know, made me look at my dad a little differently and... (laughs) Gosh, those kids. Yeah, so the inspiration for the book came from the fact that um, these kids had inspired me and I wanted to share their story with kids today. I've done a lot of work over the past 24 years with my Breaking Barriers program with helping kids find their voice and telling them their voice matters. And so um, I wanted to share this story from 1963 since it had made such a difference in my life. I wanted kids to understand that you know, you find your voice in different ways, you know, but when you do stand up for yourself or stand up for justice, you can make a difference and you, you will be heard. 
You are watching all of these things unfold on the news with your family in Stanford, Connecticut. And you talk a lot about how you wanted to be contributing, to be fighting alongside these children. It's such a poignant moment in the book after white supremacists bombed the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, killing four little girls. You're devastated. Your father sees that you're broken. And yet he says, yes, it's heartbreaking, but we've got to fight. I'm going to fight. And you made that decision. Yeah, he left it up to me. Yeah, he, he, you know, um, came into my bedroom and sat down. I was, you know, had a quiet talk and, you know, basically said, you know, the battle is, is an ongoing, this is an ongoing struggle. You know, this didn't end when, with the March on Washington. It's, you know, it's not going to end with legislation. This battle is ongoing. And, I know I'm going to fight, you know, what, what are you going to do? And it's sort of set my whole life up, you know, for um, how I'd handle life going forward. And, you know, do you lay down and play dead or do you fight back? Um, whether it's something happening to you personally or if it's something, uh, a justice and equality issue or whatever it is. And it really did kind of, of all the things that happened sort of that year, Right. It set the tone for me me going forward. You address head-on really tough topics in the memoir, but at its core, it's also the story of a loving family and a teenage girl who's just trying to find her own voice. Let's introduce our listeners to 13-year-old Sharon. Could you read from the opening of the book? Chapter 1. Tomorrow is my birth. I'm turning 13 which makes today, January 12th, 1963, the very last day of me not being a teenager. I stare at myself in the full-length mirror attached to my closet door. I see Dad smile and Mom's eyes and nose. The gap between my front teeth is distinctly mine. So is being nearsighted. I squint at the rest of my reflection, the way my body has started to curve, the way my skin breaks out around my forehead. There's a look of concern on my face. Honestly, I'm worried about tomorrow. My older brother, Jackie Jr., started to rebel once he became a teenager. I assume this will happen to me next. Maybe it already has. I shut the door to my walk-in closet and get dressed for the day in jeans and a T-shirt. It's best that I thoroughly enjoy these final hours before descending into teenage darkness, I think to myself. I decide to ride Diamond, my beautiful black and white horse, with a white diamond shape on his dark black muzzle. He is my four-legged best friend. Together we push boundaries and release the restlessness that's buried deep inside both of us. Riding Diamond is my definition of freedom. We're able to have a horse because our home sits on a hill overlooking a lake and is in the middle of six acres of land. My parents, Jack and Rachel Robinson, bought property in Stanford to build this house in 1954, when my father was still playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Before that, we lived in an integrated neighborhood in St. Albans, Queens. I was four when we left there, just old enough to have a few memories. But our Connecticut house is where I spent most of my life. With all that land, the only thing missing was a horse. We found the perfect spot for the barn and corral. 
While it was being built, my younger brother David and I learned to care for Diamond at a boarding farm a few miles away. I dressed for warmth and adventure in beat-up riding jeans and two layers of shirts and sweaters. I leave my room passing by my brother's rooms as I head down the hallway to the kitchen. Mom is standing at the stove frying bacon. Usually, Dad would be standing beside her stirring grits, but he's still in the hospital recovering from knee surgery. Instead, my grandmother shifts between the grits on the stove and fresh biscuits in the oven. Seeing them makes me anxious for an update on Dad. I can't hide my disappointment. I was expecting him home for my birthday. Morning, I say. Good morning, Sharon. Mom's smile is bright. You're just in time for breakfast. Please set the table and call your brothers. Thank you, Sharon. What do you hope young readers will take away from your memoir? I hope they'll um, take away that, one, Jackie Robinson was not just a baseball player, um, that he was a man that remained, used his celebrity to fight injustice, and that he, um, his family was important to him. And, and, and then I hope they take away that um, as a 13-year-old, you know, I had my own struggles, um, which um, so I'm very much, even though it doesn't matter that I come from a famous family, we you know we all have struggles as we uh, move from childhood into adolescence and, you know, um, finding again that inner voice and that strength so that when you have to do your personal battles, you, you'll have something to fight with. Thank you so very much, Sharon. <laughs> Thank you. You've lived up to this family legacy. Your dad would be so proud of you. Thank you. Really. We're leaving Birmingham, Alabama behind us now and traveling across the globe to China in the 1960s. There, the Cultural Revolution that would last until the mid-1970s, was underway. Under the leadership of Mao Zedong, the Communist Party took political control, splintering the country into a violent class struggle where millions of people who were accused of being detractors were persecuted or suffered public humiliation. As you'll hear from Da Chen, many were tortured or forced into hard labor. Others had their property seized and their family names blackened. In Girl Under a Red Moon, Da shares his family story. Welcome to the program, Da. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you, Susan. Thank you. Could you tell our listeners about Girl Under a Red Moon? Well, Girl Under a Red Moon, uh, Lisa, my editor here, a fabulous editor asked me uh, two years ago in a New York literary gathering that uh, da, I'm having this new imprint called Scholastic Focus, nonfiction young adult, would you write me a, um, a book about cultural revolution? But she came to the right source. I survived the revolution and I, um, I have published previously two memoirs about my family in general. But when she mentioned this book to me, it immediately, at that time, I really missed my 
I have oldest sister. She's uh, uh, almost my mother figure uh, to me. She was the oldest of the five siblings. I was the youngest. And my mother thrust me into her arms and said, take care of this baby. And then, and I, the earliest memory of my childhood was riding on her back. She uh, tied herself, fastened myself to, to her back and doing the chores. And we traveled the entire village, you know, walk all over the entire village. And when she came, Lisa came to me to, to ask me to write a book. I uh, immediately said that this, this will be a book to uh, commemorate my sister. She's still around, she's in her 70s, and she's a grandmother herself. But um, I became sadder and sadder thinking of her childhood. And uh, my family uh, was uh, uh, a called landlord's family, which is a very, very uh, dark label, political label, uh, as bad as a murderer's uh, uh, family. So pol in, in terms of politics, our family became sort of pariahs in a village. And in 1949, when the China was turning red all the way from north to the east and uh, to, the, to the south, and then the army general uh, from the Red Army point gun at my uh, <clears throat> grandfather's head and demanding him, forcing him to surrender our lands. We used to own lands quite a bit in the village. And from then on, they label us uh, uh, like a criminal. My grandfather was uh, sentenced to long, long labor camp reform, digging uh, reservoirs in the mountains. And so um, when he got too old, my father was forced to take over his jail terms, continue to dig into the mountain, uh, uh, the mountain reservoir, which is like a long-ending job. So uh, each year I saw my, uh, my grandfather and my father only a few months uh, of the year. But uh, this tragic phase, my father and my grandfather were all humiliated and were all beaten by the commune's uh, cartridges. And uh, but this book is all about my sister. And um, my sister uh, actually was a very wonderful kid. She was uh, the monitor of, of her class, and um, she. Uh, she was a, I think, a number one student. She's from very uh, politically blackened family, but she did so well, better than other people, that uh, there was a gleam of hope clinging to her because um, she's no longer uh, with this class of family. You know, we're all darkened, and uh, and. The schools like her so much, promised her that uh, she will be the new president of new records. And they were, and one day, 
they gathered the entire school, middle school. She was only uh, 13 years old. And uh, the principal uh, asked her to go to the stage. And uh, to her surprise, he did not offer her to be the president of the uh, Red Guards and took away her red uh, armbands and uh, pushed her away and expelled her right in front of the uh, school, humiliating her. And she was crying. She couldn't understand what had happened. And the principal said that, that we have made a great mistake of making you uh, putting you in a leader's uh, leadership uh, position to be a student leader. Now we correct the wrong. Today you are expelled. We'll never want to see you back in the school again. And she ran home. She ran home crying, crying. But she didn't go home directly. She took to the cliff. You know, we have a cliff facing the sea, a rolling sea. The water was just always rolling, and uh, and she uh, lost hope. She was supposed to be hopeful, supposed to bring hope, bring honor, bring uh, um, praise to our family, because uh, her former generation, my grandfather and my father, they all uh, labeled, they all darkened, they all criminals, but she was the one who soon be a bloom growing out of this garden over the wall. So she didn't run home. She was so shameful. She was the eldest of a generation. She carried all the burdens on her shoulder. The more she thought about her uh, failure, now she saw, saw it as a, her failure, the more she felt depressed and then eventually she began to began to run uh, towards the edge of the cliff and uh, try to end her life. Uh, when she was about to throw herself onto the sea, our village uh, shepherds grabbed her ankle, thin little ankle, you know. <laughs> 13-year-old girl and pulled her up and chastised her, scolded her for being such a stupid girl, wanting to end her life in her prime. And um, I'm so grateful that she was saved. She didn't uh, end her life. I would not imagine, I couldn't imagine what would happen to our lives. Uh, might especially uh, if she had done that, but she took it so much on her shoulder. And then uh, next day, we are uh, the the shepherd in our village also said that uh, his brother was a principal in a middle school in the mountains. You run away, run away from trouble. You know, whenever you have trouble, you run away. And that's we. Uh, that's why we. Uh, she ran away. Uh, but it's not very easy to escape from our village. You know, the very same day, uh, 
when we were leaving village for our uh, middle school in in the sky, you know, um, the two uh, former classmates of hers. One is a new president. You know, her position was given to a guy. Uh, uh, he was a new president now. He said, well, I, you lose the job. I am the new president. I'm here to stop you from leaving this town. And I'm here to take you back to school to go around the village for public humiliation. While he was doing that, my sister resisted. He slapped my sister. And um, while his buddy was torturing me, giving me physical pain, and my sister was having to fight Aya when she eventually heard me crying in pain. She, I've never seen her uh, fight before. She was a dancer, she was a kind person, and she fought back this uh, president and pushed him so hard to the ground that his back of his head hit a rock, and he sort of a uh, Dazed. And in that very moment, she snatched me and carried me and ran away. So we will go onto the road leading to a Bridgetown uh, Middle School. Oh, my goodness, Da. Now, could you tell us what happened? You got to the middle school. It was a completely different environment from where you had come in terms of the school. Well, it was a... Um, it was a beautiful uh, safe harbor for her for a month only. But very soon, uh, the government uh, heightened this revolutionary uh, flames, I guess, and it caught up with us. And one day, they uh, took out the principal. And that's because the uh, army sent a, a political Commissar uh, is a Russian terminology. It's political advisor, and uh, who will be the new principal? And he'll hire new uh, local uh, teachers and getting rid of all teachers. And um, the principal uh, was too close. My sister was because we're taking care so well that uh, they realized that. Our relationship with the principal is very close. So uh, my sister was condemned together with the uh, uh, principal on the same stage, the same day. And uh, that is uh, the essence of revolution. And we are, we are uh, publicly humiliated. And suddenly this safe harbor became unsafe. And uh, uh, we are, and this is, the contents of uh, uh, what I wrote about in this memoir, memorizing my sister. That was extraordinary, mm. bearing witness to that. I never have heard this story from the vantage of a child mm. as you told it. How were you able to carry this story, which is so vivid and so poignant, for so long within you? Well, my sister still doesn't want to doesn't want to remember this. She uh, didn't want it to, to be written, but I, uh, uh, I, I live in a freer country. I can do that. And uh, the whole world 
uh, has to know. I just wanted the whole world to know that we can survive if you are strong enough. My sister was never allowed back to school, never graduated from anything. And uh, she became the youngest farmer uh, on a farm. She worked with the grown-ups and uh, carried very heavy load, her back pains, her ankle pains. But she realized that there was no hope for her because she was cut uh, into half in the prime of her life. And uh, she had to depend on the land. I mean, she was so fond of this beautiful, sweet land. And she was uh, become a model farmer, actually. She would know when to plant the rice, when to plant the seeds of rice, when to plant, I, I said, a yam. And she became an expert in several fields, when to uh, harvest fava beans and all that. And um, I'm so grateful that because of her strength, of her belief in a family love, and we love her so much that uh, we survive the revolution. Could you tell our listeners about your journey to America? I was very lucky uh, from young uh, young age, my family had always uh, emphasized you, 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 now you have to study very well. You have to practice calligraphy. And, and everywhere I go, I sign with the calligraphy. And that's because my grandfather taught me. My grandfather was, uh, want me to be a, a traditional Confucius scholar. Confucius scholar means that uh, you live morally, you are you have dedication, you are driven, ambitious, and you never betray your friends. But my father was most known as a acupuncturist. So he cured, he traveled to the countryside to treat people with the strokes. I was able to ride the bicycle. So I carried my, my father, my father in the back seat, and I rode. Uphill, downhill, my father is older. So, uh, and then I will uh, sit in front of the villagers where uh, the grandfather was had a stroke. And from there, I uh, get to know one uh, English, one English professor retired into our village, said that uh, I don't have money to pay you. And she said that I must pay you your father something because you treat um, the professor's sister had a stroke. Her mouth is all uh, twisted. And my father didn't know what to do. And I, I was beside this. I was listening to this conversation. And I say, teach me English. He said, you come tomorrow. So uh, from then on, I begin to learn English. And English has always been my path. I went to uh, Beijing. Uh, I studied very hard uh, through the examination. I went from very, very humble village to be among the we call white-skinned city children <laughs> uh, to be their college uh, classmates and um, learn English. And I was... Uh, I was uh, good at it. I was asked to remain 
in a college where I went to school. And that was a huge honor. The biggest honor is to be asked to remain at the college where you taught and become a professor there. And from there, I uh, befriended to a Christian uh, missionary who working who was working at a uh, as a uh, mis- uh, as an English teacher in our college at that time, and they uh, introduced me to uh, a college in America in Lincoln, Nebraska, and that's where I I went. I went for a year or two, and then uh, and I I still remember, uh, and I work at a as a waiter in a the only Chinese restaurant in a. In Lincoln, Nebraska. Oh my goodness! As a waiter, and I served during lunch hour, uh, uh, Attorney General of Lincoln, Nebraska. I, I did not know who Attorney General was, and he uh, he uh, come to lunch, and I'll give him free uh, uh, second bowl of rice, which I was supposed to charge. So. Uh, so he uh, he said that, da, your English is very good. Uh, you should go to law school. And I said, wait a second, I, I don't like law school because law school is very political and I, I, I try to stay away from politics. He said, well, it's because I hear, I hear all your story. It's because it's political. You should go to law school. And he encouraged me to take LSAT from Lincoln, Nebraska. And uh, eventually I came to New York, uh, accept the offer from uh, Columbia University uh, to go to law school here. It sounds like you could have done anything, but right. I'm very grateful you wrote this beautiful book. I think anyone of any age could read it and find so much in it. But I wondered what in particular you hope your young readers will take from the book? The more I thought about my sister, my eldest sister, the more I loved her, and the more nostalgic I, about, I, uh, I think about her, uh, her childhood. And she was so, so strong. She was so dedicated, so faithful to her belief, to believe in her ultimately, that she survived almost unsurvivable situation. She was condemned, she was expelled, and all her friends dropped her. In the village, she became a young, youngest farmer. She carried manures. She hurt her back, hurt her ankles, and she cried in her bed. And then she became an expert, also a model farmer. And I just want to share the whole with the whole world how strong, how strength, how belief and faith in um, in yourself actually uh, could save yourself. There is a hope if you believe in yourself, and nothing bad is going to last forever. You last forever, and that's the power. Well, thank you so very much, Da. Thank really, you. hearing your story was so powerful and so moving. 
Thanks so much again to Da and Sharon for sharing their powerful stories with us and with future generations through their memoirs. And thank you for listening. To learn more about Child of the Dream and Girl Under a Red Moon, check the show notes or go to scholasticreads.com. Special thanks to producer Emily Morrow, associate producer Mackenzie Cutrizula, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.